It's June 9th, 2015, and this is episode 220. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're getting a bit of a different perspective. In the past, I've talked about the broad divide I see in people building with Bitcoin as the idealists and the entrepreneurs. People are excited about Bitcoin technology for two basic reasons, generally speaking. First, it's better than the way that we do things now in a wide variety of ways. And second, it'll challenge and compete with government-issued money. The archetypical entrepreneur thinks that that first point is a gigantic opportunity that can let them solve that problem that they've been wishing there was a way to solve. But until Bitcoin introduced the distributed global ledger, there wasn't. The part about competing with government money? For some, it might be a bonus, but it's certainly not the primary value they see when they look at that thing called Bitcoin. And if it came right down to it, they'd likely find a blockchain system just as useful without that disruptive, operatorless characteristic imbued into Bitcoin by its anonymous creators. But would Bitcoin still be better than the way that we do things now if it's made difficult or impossible to legally use by governments? I think it might not. And so to the entrepreneur, the utility represents the opportunity and the chance to disrupt global money systems is little more than a risk. On the other hand, while an idealist generally acknowledges that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency provide a better way in many problematic areas, if given that same choice, would likely choose a truly free and neutral Bitcoin network and blockchain, even if it were made illegal by the governments it competes with. Whether legal or not, a successful, broadly distributed cryptocurrency firmly and irrevocably breaks the monopoly of government-issued money, and so performs its function as that other way, where no other alternative can survive. I've laid out things in black and white terms for simplicity, so you can see the players of this complex game as I do, but it is anything but black and white. Today, we're in the not-so-cheap seats at the Exponential Finance Conference, courtesy of LTB correspondent Jonathan Mohan, listening to the entrepreneurial case for the blockchain. We open with CNBC's Bob Pisani, who emceed the event, as he pretty much lays it out in this After Lunch introduction. The blockchain. Not so much Bitcoin. Can I say something uh, heretical? Bitcoin is getting too much publicity. Bitcoin is a little bit of a sideshow. The main attraction is the blockchain. Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency that runs off the blockchain. That's all it really is. In a sense, it's not that interesting. What really matters is the blockchain. That's what we're going to be talking about this afternoon. The blockchain solves one of the most important problems in the history of mankind. It answers the question, how do I know if I own something? I buy a piece of land in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Now, in ancient times, you know if you own something because you had physical possession of it. But that doesn't mean that much anymore. Even if you buy a piece of land in, say, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, how do you know you own that land? Oh, well, I have a deed. Okay, what mechanism happened for you to actually get that deed? Suppose I bought 100 shares of IBM today. Tomorrow you tell your mom, hey, mom, I bought 100 shares of IBM. How do you know you own 100 shares of IBM? And more importantly, what was the transmission mechanism and how much did you pay somebody to make sure that you actually own 100 shares of IBM. 
You transfer $1,000 to your aunt in Thailand. How do you know your aunt in Thailand got the money and how did it get there? How much did it cost you? The blockchain deals with all these issues. Many don't understand that the blockchain answers these questions in a way that is more efficient and it seems to me more secure than any other transmission mechanism that's ever existed. That's what we're going to be talking about. Now, in fairness, Bob walked back his remarks a little bit the next introduction because the speaker pointed out that Bitcoin the token incentivized mining, without which Bitcoin the ledger isn't possible, and Bob was quick to agree with that. But I don't really think that's what he was saying in the first place. I think he was saying, what's so special about Bitcoin when you can just have your own private blockchain or use another blockchain? If the purpose is just to leverage this technology, then the particular blockchain you use doesn't matter, and there really is nothing special about Bitcoin. And this is the crux of it. There's just one thing special about Bitcoin compared to all the others that have come in its wake. Bitcoin is neutral and nobody controls it. As a friend of mine likes to say, quote, the degree to which Gavin Andreessen can easily make a decision that changes Bitcoin is the degree to which Gavin can be held responsible for Bitcoin in a liability sense. The recent legal actions taken against Ripple reinforce this point that just like Napster was a centralized company enabling a decentralized network, so distributed blockchains or novel consensus mechanisms do not protect you if there is a company or vested individuals critical to continued development or operation. The funny part is, we've seen this movie before. Bitcoin was an evolutionary response to earlier Napster-esque attempts at digital cash like eGold and DigiCash, and others that seem to have accomplished that better way that entrepreneurs love, but ran headlong into liability and legality. But maybe this time will be different. And now it's time for today's magic word. <laughs> today's magic word is alter. That is A-L-T-E-R. Alter. You've got until the 16th of June to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Okay, so we're going to spend the rest of today's episode with Blythe Masters, who until recently was head of global commodities at J.P. Morgan Chase. She's most well known for having created the credit default swap, which was a prominent instrument in the financial collapse of 2009. Here's Warren Buffett explaining why they're very dangerous on CNBC. One of the other issues that may be creating volatility, people talk about it, is credit default swaps and what role they've played, for example, in Europe with some of the bonds there. And I'm curious, do you believe that that credit default swaps uh, should should exist, they should be outlawed, what should happen to them? Well, they, they, they can be a very destructive instrument. I mean, if you think about it, you can't go out and insure my house against fire because you do not have an insurable interest, as they call it in the trade. Because once you insure my house against fire, uh, and you may decide that, you know, that maybe dropping a few matches around my lawn might be a good idea. Uh, and credit default swaps, if you don't own underlying debt and you buy a credit default swap, you have an interest in that place getting into trouble. And when a lot of people have an interest in a place getting in trouble, they may start putting out misleading statements about it. I mean, if you had a bank, if you were short the stock of a bank, 
you might hire, and there wasn't any FDIC, you might go out and hire 100 movie extras to stand in front of that bank. Uh, and in, in effect, you would create your own reality. Now, buying, a, buying credit default swaps and talking about them and, and causing the price of credit default swaps to go up creates its own reality to some degree. So I think they are potentially a very antisocial instrument. Blythe recently emerged as the CEO of Digital Asset Holdings. We're pleased to share her perspective with you in full, courtesy of Jonathan Mohan and the Exponential Finance Conference. Okay, uh, I've been uh, tasked this afternoon uh, with merely explaining to you all why the blockchain is the financial challenge of our time. Uh, and like Catherine, I'm going to start with a little bit of history and an observation, actually, which is um, that I think one uh, very good illustration of the sheer power of the technology that I'm going to be talking about, Catherine spoke about, uh, is the very uh, significant difference of perspective uh, that she and I bring uh, to uh, one subject, and yet both views are equally valid uh, and I think uh, additive. I want to start with some history. Given my 27, you shouldn't have given that away, Bob, 27-year uh, track record in financial services, I obviously lived through the height of the financial crisis. Uh, and I know that in 2008, interconnectedness and opacity about that nearly brought the world's financial system to its knees. In the aftermath of it, there was significant reform of the global banking system and financial services sector. And some of that reform has obviously had a very significant positive effect. Obviously, the world's global banking sector is significantly less leveraged today than it was in 2007. On the other hand, some of the financial reforms have had some unintended consequences and are introducing new and different forms of risk that are equally important to understand. For example, Central clearing of derivatives and central execution of the same have been mandated. There's a growth in the shadow banking system, in part because of the fact that rising capital requirements are forcing banks to reduce the amount of risk and the amount of balance sheet assets that they carry in their business. Market liquidity, as a consequence of that, and other things, has declined quite markedly, despite the fact that volumes continue to increase. Meanwhile, in this context of a, an increasingly centralized regulated financial ecosystem, the rate of pace of transaction execution at the front end, if you will, of trading, continues to evolve almost to warp speed. Yet how ironic is it that the settlement of those transactions still lags by many cases, days, if not weeks. Some of you may be tweeting about what I'm speaking about, and someone in Sydney will probably have read about it by the time I sit down again. Those of you that just bought a stock on one of those iPhones won't be seeing it until at least next Friday. <laughs> in this context of an increasingly electronified and high-speed uh, financial system, Operational resiliency has obviously become a significantly increased area of focus. Vulnerability to cyber attacks, operational failures, 
have become a major focus not only of financial firms, but of course of their regulators and other market participants. The biggest challenge faced by many of the major financial institutions in the world today is the fact that they are tasked with processing, recording, reporting to regulators and otherwise, reconciling and auditing ever increasing amounts of sensitive transaction information. And yet the legacy infrastructure that we use to do that is generally pretty outdated. It is centralized. It is protected by perimeter security that has proven subject to repeated breach. The data contained therein is generally unencrypted, so once you get through that perimeter security, if you manage it, it's available for your interference and understanding. Generally speaking, there's a hub and spoke model involved, and enormous amounts of cost are involved in continuously reconciling the same data that's kept in different places at different times in different locations around the world for different users so that everybody can keep up with it all and on top of it and then figure out why it isn't all the same at the same time. Those of you who work in financial services, I think know exactly what it is I'm talking about. Those of you uh, who look at financial services from the outside and imagine a world where you have innovated that sector out of existence, Listen carefully to what I'm talking about. It's not necessarily as simple as it might sound. So in this context, I want to introduce why I believe that distributed ledger technology is a tremendously exciting and powerful development. In fact, it's the sheer power of that technology uh, that forced me, or attracted me, to run a tiny startup uh, but innovative technology company after almost 30 years in financial services at one of the biggest uh, organizations on the planet. So what is the blockchain technology? You had a good introduction, thank you Catherine for that. It's essentially an IT uh, uh, innovation that draws on cryptography, advances in the internet, and advances in computing power. Generally these databases are based on open source uh, internet protocol. So people who are doing the invention here are giving those inventions away to the world in the interest of seeing the world and its efficiency improve. Economic transactions on a digital ledger can be <coughs> programmed to record virtually anything of value. Your identity, you've heard that mentioned already. A will, a deed, a title, a license, intellectual property, an invention but also almost any type of financial instrument. Not only are the facts of who owns what financial instruments or other items of value kept, uh, able to be kept efficiently in a digital ledger, distributed ledger, but also it's possible to record the actual business logic that has been agreed to between the parties in the financial transaction. This means the things that they have agreed to do for each other, their respective liabilities or responsibilities. So it's more than just the facts of ownership, the ability to convey a significant amount of nuanced uh, and important information for the future management of those assets. And meanwhile, this ledger represents an incorruptible truth that can be accessed because of the fact of mass collaboration of different computers that are incentivized often by uh, the creation of uh, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin to keep that information validated, verified, uh, and stable. 
So this permits us to imagine a very changed financial system, infrastructure, backing that system, where costs and risks and inefficiencies are drastically reduced and where transactions can be incorruptibly recorded in a cryptographically secure manner, shared by numerous parties, constantly reconciled and in sync by design without the need for the cost of constant efforts to reconcile and to explain differences in that information. That is a hugely powerful concept for institutions that are dealing in financial information and transaction record keeping. And by the way, when we talk about the shared or public nature of distributed uh, ledgers, that doesn't mean that all of the information is instantly being publicized. The ability to keep that uh, private information as private as it needs to be is an important feature, of course, uh, of encryption. So how can these systems tackle settlement latency in mainstream financial markets? Well, in short, because on a distributed ledger, and a token uh, that is part of that ledger, you're able to embed the information that represents or evidences title to, for example, a financial instrument like an equity or a bond or even a loan. The list goes on. Once you've digitized in that way a financial asset, you can transfer its title on that distributed ledger in what is effectively real time at digital speed. This then provides us with an immutable, uncorruptible history of transaction and asset ownership that can be accessed from, by multiple parties and is constantly, again, in sync by design. This means the entire life cycle of a trade, including its execution, the netting of multiple trades against each other, reconciliation of who did what with whom and whether they agree can occur at the trade entry level. That's much earlier in the stack of process than what you are accustomed to seeing in mainstream financial infrastructure. The total addressable market for these concepts is therefore measured in the trillions. Now, I don't want you to get to realize that the world is still a long way from a, a state where distributed digital ledgers have been able to be uh, universally adopted. They are attracting a tremendous amount of interest and attention essentially for the reasons that I just described to all of you. But there is a lot of work to be done and there are many good and reasonable questions that need to be asked and answered about how we make this technology ready for mainstream adoption for volumes and values of financial assets that are measured in gigantic uh, numbers. Can the consensus mechanisms survive concerted attacks? Can compa transaction capacity on the scale that we're talking about, literally thousands and thousands of transactions per second, actually be coped with in this context? Can privacy, which is important in this context, be appropriately maintained? Who is going to be processing and ensuring the validity of all these transactions? Can we know who they are? Can we do our know your vendor process on those uh, transaction processes so that we can meet regulatory obligations. This is where my firm, Digital Assets, comes into the picture. Essentially, we're a company that is organized to help bridge the gap between the new emerging digital world and the existing world of mainstream financial infrastructure and architecture. 
Distributed ledger technology does have the potential to be disruptive of certain business models, but it has at least as much potential to be enormously empowering of existing business models in terms of making them lower cost, more efficient, and less risky. And at the end of the day, that will translate down into higher returns for the man on the street, ultimately the end investor who's investing his or her life savings. So it's not just important for the banks, the financial intermediaries, the exchanges, uh, the infrastructure providers. It's important for everyone, just in a different way than in the context of consumer payments. Now, financial markets, as I mentioned, are regulated heavily. And they're regulated heavily for very good reason. Distributed ledgers have the ability to improve transparency for regulators and to allow existing financial firms to become less risky providers of valuable financial services. The vast majority of the operational costs of the existing financial infrastructure relates to tracking, reconciling, reporting, including to regulators, and auditing huge amounts of information. These functions are not going to go away. They have to be performed. The key is how do we enable them to be performed at higher speed and with greater efficiency. That is the potential of applying distributed ledger technology to mainstream financial markets. So we won't get there overnight, but we will get there. And firms are coalescing around this, including the major firms, as well as innovating firms like my own. We're helping the best companies in financial services understand how they can operate in the context of their existing operational infrastructure whilst exploring the opportunity to take advantage of distributed ledgers and do that at lower cost with greater efficiency. The challenge is to bridge that gap and to enable existing firms to leverage the technology in a way that's beneficial to them and their customers as well as to their regulators. How seriously should you take this? I would take it about as seriously as you should have taken the concept of the internet in the early 1990s. It's a big deal. And it is going to change the way that our financial world operates. Finally, I'll close with just one comment, which is I spoke for quite a few minutes, and I didn't actually mention the topic of Bitcoin, or indeed any other cryptocurrency. The reason is, is that technology has the power to do many things, including to enable seamless payments between individuals on a peer-to-peer -peer basis at much lower cost and less friction. But in fact, it has the capacity to do much, much more than just that. Thank you. One thing that's always amazed me is um, the transition you made. I'd, I'd like you to share something personal with us. You were one of the most powerful women on Wall Street. You were J.P. Morgan. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is how careful you have to be. Right? No matter what. You give them a compliment and then smack. <laughs> what do you mean, Bob? That's why you're not my old friend. Okay. Let's start over again. You're one of the most powerful women on Wall Street. And I'm curious about how you, you sort of made this transition. How did you decide to leave J.P. Morgan? Was there some epiphany when you looked at this business and said, oh my God, this is going to change the world? How did this, how did this happen? 
Well, uh, to be accurate, I, I left JP Morgan having sold the business uh, that I ran for them. And so actually there was a natural break in my uh, career. I took the opportunity to try to take some time off. I was planning on taking a year and I was minding my own business. I made a self-imposed rule that said no board work until, uh, until you know what your day job's going to be because there might be a conflict or something. And then I made an exception for this uh, strange little distributed ledgery, Bitcoin-y thing, company that I joined the board of. And how did Two that happen? Later, that, I was, was running the company. Something happened there, right? I mean, it, uh, that's, it's that moment that I'm interested in. Uh, it was the penny dropping on the subject of the systemic implications of the technology. Uh, I had understood a little bit from a distance about cryptocurrencies and, uh, uh, and Bitcoin. I had not really, until sometime late last summer or before, when I took the time to start thinking about this, uh, free from my day job, uh, to really appreciate the power of the technology. And having come to this with the perspective of seeing what happened during the financial crisis and what changed afterwards, it gave me, I think, a slightly different perspective uh, uh, from a wholesale point of view uh, than, than many others. I realized that we've improved a lot about the financial uh, world since 2008, but we've centralized, we've created more and larger uh, single points of failure, uh, we have reduced risk absorbing capacity on balance sheets, and therefore the benefits associated with being able to reduce the length of time with which, for which things stay on balance sheet is increasingly powerful. And it was when I began to think about all of that in the context of blockchain technology uh, that I uh, decided I thought this was incredibly powerful. Have, have the risks changed a bit since before 2008? I mean, to the financial system. Are there different kinds of risk now? And how can the blockchain help reduce those risks? <clears throat> uh, so the, the, the risks are uh, uh, different, uh, and some of them are the same. So. Uh, we obviously have uh, lived through a, pe a period of low uh, and relatively stable <coughs> interest rates, and that will in due course uh, come to an end. Uh, and we have yet to really test uh, the behavior of the financial system during a uh, major change of environment like that. And so there still obviously are major unknowns about how uh, the financial system uh, will perform under stress. The, the things that are new and are evolving are the increased speed electronification of markets, uh, the higher volumes, uh, the more constrained uh, balance sheets of intermediaries, the major broker dealers and banks, uh, and uh, the uh, fact that a significantly greater percentage of activity is being channeled by mandate through central, centralized points like clearinghouses in the derivatives markets. You, know, you mentioned, obviously, increased speed, but address the security issue, because that's something people still need to sort of get straight in their mind. Are you quite convinced, I'm not sure if this is the right question, of the unassailability of the blockchain? Is it secure enough to, to provide massive levels of financial transactions in a, in, in a secure manner? Am I asking that right? Or is yeah, that no, right? that's a good question. So I would say that when you think about that topic, you need to think about what is the status quo today? How secure our existing, uh, is our existing financial infrastructure? We're reading about it being under attack on a daily basis. Uh, and there are those who know that they've been, they've been uh, uh, penetrated, if you will, and there are others that do not yet know that. Um, the uh, blockchain was designed with the 
probability, or in fact the certainty, of malicious actors uh, in might. And it has existed in the world, uh, in a native, in the wild, if you will, in a native state, uh, without being compromised for what is a really long time in digital years since it was uh, invented around about the time of the financial crisis. Uh, the fact that it's also open source and subject, therefore, uh, to continuous criticism and improvement is also uh, a, uh, a positive. Obviously, there needs to be thought given to stress testing, resiliency, uh, ensuring uh, that firms meet their regulatory requirements uh, in the context of concerns about uh, security, but recognize that one of the most powerful uh, mitigants of risk of failure or risk of compromise is to diversify the consequences of that failure. If everything is kept in one place and it breaks because of a flood, an attack, any of the above, and you have to fall back to your second or third best choice, that is an inherently risky state of affairs. If instead you distribute the access to and storing of that information in multiple places where if one network point breaks, the others are there, much like the power of the internet is today, then you have diversified that risk significantly. And the point being, if, if somebody breaks in and tries to manipulate a, a part of the blockchain to, say, create some other... Uh, chain of ownership or something that wasn't there before, the others will be able to note that exists. I'm trying to get to the audience the point about the relative unassailability of the blockchain itself. Oh, well, as it relates to the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, there are different types of blockchain, different types of distributed ledger out there. But as it relates to that particular instance, uh, the argument is that it's increasingly infeasible that someone would be able to essentially counterfeit a version of the blockchain uh, in order to defraud uh, users of it, because it, would it requires an increasingly large percentage of the available computing resources uh, in the world to do that. Uh, it, to say mathematically that it's impossible would be incorrect, actually incorrect. That it is increasingly infeasible is, I think, the best way to, uh, to express that. Let me move on. You, you didn't give us much detail on digital assets, the company you formed. I'm willing, wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you're doing with the company. What kind of services do you provide? I mean, walk us through what you're, what you're doing yeah. with the company. So, uh, digital assets is a technology company uh, that is seeking to bridge the gap, if you will, between uh, the digital world. Uh, the ecosystem uh, Catherine uh, described, for example, and the mainstream uh, financial uh, asset world. Uh, if you think about the three layers of uh, uh, market infrastructure and digital infrastructure, there's a communication layer uh, where uh, transactions are initiated, signals are sent, uh, there's a, a transaction layer, and there's a database or a protocol layer. We exist in that middle layer. Uh, we build business logic. Uh, that enables uh, uh, users to essentially uh, process transactions coming from the communication layer uh, and report them or publish them to the digital protocol of choice. Uh, that enables secure settlement, it reduces counterparty risk, improves efficiency, uh, and takes account of a few details such as the existence of custodial systems in the real world today, which need to be taken account of uh, and can't simply be imagined away overnight. Uh, the, the need to deal with cash and payments for assets in dollars, as in the kind of dollars that reside in a bank account. 
uh, how do you uh, how do you pay for a digitized asset whose settlement you can speed up uh, with a non-digital currency such as dollars from your bank account without taking significant operational risk, counterparty risk along the way? We provide the rails to do that. Uh, in, in short, you know, secure settlement. It's a it's a it's a wonderful concept. Now. Obviously, this applies to more than just transferring money around. Are you also quite convinced of, uh, of the value of the blockchain in, for example, uh, real estate transactions, uh, stock settlement? Uh, can you see this being used in the, in the near future? It seems to me a very obvious application, which is why I'm so excited about the blockchain in general. Yeah. Even though cryptocurrencies is what we're talking about, but the blockchain application seems vast to me. Yeah. Uh I was just talking this morning to a, a friend back home in England uh, who works for uh, the NHS, the National Health Service, uh, which is a uh, uh, publicly provided service uh, in the UK uh, where identity management um, uh, and access to, uh, to those services are obviously uh, important uh, to be able to manage efficiently, uh, not to mention the idea that you should be able to show up uh, identify who you are using some kind of biometric identifier like your fingerprints and have your medical records available where, wherever you are in that central uh, point of, uh, of the healthcare uh, system, in that local point of the healthcare system that you're in. That's just one of the numerous examples uh, that you can uh, bring to mind as you think about the power of uh, distributed ledger technology. Where my company is focusing is in our area of domain expertise, which obviously is financial assets, uh, including securities, uh, uh, loans, uh, bonds, uh, private stock, uh, and so on. Um, and we're particularly focused on the settlement latency and the, the risks uh, and the transaction uh, processing costs in that world. Why? Because that's our area of expertise and because those are very big markets that have today very large inefficiencies. Uh, but you're absolutely right that uh, this is just one narrow area of the many areas in which this technology will be deployed over the years to come. So how do your old colleagues feel about this? You're still in touch with all of your friends on Wall Street. You go and explain this to them and what do they... They still hate me. What, 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 I can't understand that. What, what's the... Why do you... Um, why do you... Do you go and tell them that... It's not disruptive, it's constructive. I've used that phrase. I know. And, uh, and, I, and uh, the, the answer is they totally understand that. It's not just my, my old colleagues, but the major financial firms, uh, both banks, broker-dealers, and the uh, exchanges and infrastructure providers, have all uh, begun to dedicate a significant amount of their time and effort to understanding and experimenting in and around this space. Uh, but do they get it? Do they? I mean, this destructive versus constructive a little bit, tongue in cheek. Do they understand that this could be a technology if they adopted it that could make their business a lot safer and quicker? It could also disrupt the amount of money they make, for example, rather dramatically. I, mean, I guess I'm trying to figure out: Do they see it as a threat? Do they trying to figure out how to manage it? Do they want to adopt it, but they realize it could hurt profitabilities to some extent? Is it a how is it being looked at? Well, let's, let's take, take a look back at you know, what the internet was uh, in people's imaginations in the early or mid-1990s. Everyone knew it was kind of a big thing. Nobody knew exactly what direction it would go in, you know, what would happen to the people that had bricks and mortar. Uh, you know, would people ever do banking online? Would that be a threat to the banks or not? The answer is, uh, obviously, with the benefit of history, that the internet became an unbelievably powerful tool 
for many different business applications and is, is used accordingly uh, today. And there have been winners and losers, those that uh, embrace and learn to use that technology to drive customer service, drive down costs, um, uh, uh, improve customer experience, uh, have won. And those that didn't manage that or got left behind or didn't realize have lost. Uh, it's not just about technology, obviously there are other, there are other factors, but that's in a, that is essentially the same uh, or the analogous situation here today. Those that uh, in, uh, learn enough to be able to take this technology and meld it to achieve their commercial business uh, purposes will both be able to gain competitive advantage and or be able uh, to uh, ward off competition. Um, and at the end of the day, they're doing that by reducing costs, improving efficiency, doing a better job for customers, so that's not a bad thing, it's a, it's a good thing. So you, you couch it in the terms of improving simple customer service in a way, giving people what they want, moving things, moving money faster and more securely. It's for what the customer wants. For example, yeah. yeah. Uh, before I let you go, Reid Hoffman wrote a very interesting uh, story in the new issue, current issue of Wired UK. Uh, at least one global cryptocurrency will achieve mass market adoption, not a huge prediction, but we will see the emergence of Bitcoin Googles, Bitcoin Facebooks, Bitcoin Alibabas very soon. Massively valuable companies for which no contemporary analogs exist, not even on the internet, built on the platform's foundation of decentralized trust and programmable money. Do, do you think that this is that massively disruptive on an internet level almost? He talked about Bitcoin Googles, Bitcoin Facebooks, Bitcoin Alibabas. Yes. I would say blockchain, but yes. I, I agree, and um, we're going to hear a lot more about this in the next few minutes. Blythe Masters, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Jonathan, Adam, Blythe, and Bob. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Thanks for listening.